All right. Yeah, I decided I was going to have to stand up this time because I was getting tired. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and uh, you know, I don't have a fancy studio like you with a nice arm and everything. I've got my stuff sitting on top of two plastic boxes in them and my uh, brand new laptop box. So well, this is by right. no means a fancy studio. This is a $10 mic arm that's bolted onto the side of my desk right here that it is nice because I can just kind of swing it out of the way and then pull it back in when I need to do uh, either interviews or, or Zoom calls. So yep. that's, that's really good that, stuff in the, in, at home. Sometimes when I'm pressed for an episode and I have to do a solo episode where I don't have an interview lined up in the basement, I have the same type of arm that's uh, mounted basically on this cabinet, which is basically like our Costco overflow storage area. <laughs> and I may or may not have recorded podcasts with the boom over, you know, a couple of Capri sun boxes and my laptop stacked up on honey nut Cheerio, um, uh, dual pack. So yeah, you do what you need to do to record an episode, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, nobody, I mean, just like you said, you know, nobody's actually sees this. Thank God. You're right. <laughs> you know, but it's a, it's a lot of fun doing this kind of thing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. This is Ted McElroy, and I have today a really intriguing guest, Adam Schmela, uh, he is, and I apologize, I've gone blank on the, uh, it's the 2020 Money uh, podcast, um, and 
it is a really fantastic podcast as far as learning how to truly get better finance control, financial control over your practice, over your regular life, which uh, this is all what this is all about. Adam, welcome to the podcast, Division of Leadership, and uh, I'm so tickled that you're here with me today. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it and I'm privileged to share in the conversation with you. So thanks again. Uh, certainly. Uh, to, to give you guys a little bit of background, um, Adam and I met at a state meeting for the West Virginia meeting. I was up there to do a speaking engagement and he was there as a vendor um, to talk about his business. And we struck up a conversation because of a mutual friend that we have and actually one of Adam's uh, clients, uh, Glenn Bailey, uh, S. Glenn Bailey, I guess I should say. <laughs> there it is. There um, it is. Yep. <laughs> that's right. And uh, Glenn and I were on the board of trustees for SECO for many years together and have become uh, very good friends over the years. And he was talking about this guy that was going to be there at the meeting and who was his financial advisor. And I was like, really? He said, yeah. So he said, let's go meet him. And I'm not joking y'all in about three minutes. I thought we are going to have a lot of fun together yeah. very soon. I, I see this microphone on his desk at the, the, the booth. And I said, what's up with that? And he goes, I do podcasts. I said, oh my gosh, I do too. Yeah, right. you know, and, so was this whole, and a bond was formed. A bond was formed, yeah. you know, and then the next thing was uh, we started talking about our podcasts and, and then, you know, doing some cross pollination and, and here we are. And so uh, what you're going to see today or hear today, is uh, a, a, a actually a continuation. We literally just got finished recording Adam's podcast, uh, went to the bathroom, grabbed some, something, something to drink and came right back at it again. And uh, I, I'm, I, again, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you here, Adam. Uh, today, we're going to get into some really cool topics. Um, I guess the, the first thing is do tell everybody a little bit about your podcast, about your business and, and what you do for ODs. Yeah, appreciate it. And, and it's funny, as you were just, as I kind of inflected and a bond was formed, my mind immediately went back to uh, analytical kind of thinking, so are we a covalent bond or an ionic bond? Because I think a covalent bond is stronger than an ionic bond. So which one did like, I, gra- I graduated pre-med. So my, my degree, both my wife and I, uh, Andrea, my wife is a, is a practicing optometrist. We live here in Indiana. Uh, we, we, what brought us to Indiana was she went to IU optometry school. She graduated in 2011. She brought us to Indiana. I kept us here. I've been an advisor. Uh, I've been a certified financial planner. Well, I've, I've been an advisor since 2007, uh, CFP since 2015 and run my own firm since 2011. So a couple of dates, the business has gone through a couple of iterations, but in short, what we do is we help optometrists around the country plan their on-purpose life. What that means and how we do that is we put intention behind the financial decisions that optometrists make, both in their practice, if they're a practice owner, and in their personal life. Uh, so again, we work with, with, with all ODs, whether they are an associate in a practice, in a corporate affiliated setting, like a Costco, a Walmart, something like that, or your, your single or multi-location doctor, uh, doctor-owned practices. It is all about helping optometrists live their on-purpose life and spending money, investing money, making decisions with money with intention behind it. Because so, to- so oftentimes what we see is when we ask an OD a question about how they made a decision with their money, there's a long pause and there's like, I don't know, or that's what my friend did, or I Googled it or, 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 or fill in the blank, right? There's, there, there hasn't been that sense of planning. And so being married to an OD, knowing the business of optometry very well, I joke with ODs that, that I'm, I think I'm about as close to one can be from a practice management side of things as being an OD without actually having OD after my name. And, and, and I, I thoroughly enjoy working 
on the business of optometry more than I enjoy working in the business of optometry. The, the decisions that can be made and how a practice can be used as a conduit of cash flow and a vehicle in which to build wealth, that is what just absolutely, I, I love working with ODs in that capacity. Yeah. I, you said, you know, a vehicle of creating wealth and that's something that rings. Uh, I, I mentioned this same guy on your podcast, uh, Jerry Perhall, uh, quickly, little quick question. Uh, yeah. Shmela, is that Czech? It is Bohemian Czech Republic. Yep. The reason I know that is because of my friend, Jerry Perhall, P-R-C-H-A-L. He has one less vowel than you do, but the same <laughs> amount of letters. So um, he is also Czech. And, uh, but he, he had said, you know, that, um, his father-in-law, who was also an OD, and his wife's an OD, and his sister-in-law's an OD, his son's an OD. They've got a lot of that going on in their family. Jerry said that um, one day that his father-in-law had said, you know, optometry will never make you rich. But what it will do is open the door for you to figure out a lot of other ways where you can get rich. Absolutely. And, and he meant that not just in money, but he also meant that in richness of life as well. And, Absolutely. But, but I'll have to say that Earl Taylor was probably one of the most incredibly uh, unique individuals for sure with all these great little isms he had that, that I got to learn through Jerry. Um, but you know, it, that's true. I think, I think that's, you know, optometry is a great vehicle of creating wealth. It's not going to probably make you rich, however, but there are so many other things that it will lead you to. And that's where you come into play because as you said earlier, I mean, we don't know what we don't know. And so when you're, when you're having these conversations for the first time uh, and, and what you're going to find out from this is basically all these podcasts that I do is just like $10,000 worth of free consulting. <laughs> so when you're having this discussion with someone for the first time, how do you lead them through the process of what you're going to do and, and create the value that they need? So I, I found the same thing too, with 2020 money. Like if I ever like, I'll have a question. It's like, ah, that's a good podcast interview. And then I can just ask the question as if I'm asking the audience, as if I'm asking for someone that doesn't know, but guess what? I might not really actually know how it works. Right. So you get right. a free education by hosting a podcast. I love it. I absolutely love it. So, uh, so there's a, we always, regardless of what decision that we're making in life, whether it is a financial decision, a career decision, even down to something as menial and trivial as what are we doing for dinner? What, the the phrase "What are you solving for?" needs to be taken into consideration, and that's a fancy way of saying understand your why. What's moving the needle? Why are you wanting to make a decision about your money in this way? What are you trying to solve for? What's the what's the intention that, or what's the pain that you currently feel that you're trying to get a solution for? Because what I've learned, and and I'm I'm the same way. I don't get excited. Like the first thing that I think of when I wake up in the morning is, gosh, today's a great day to work on my financial plan. Like that just doesn't happen. And, and, and for most people, now there are people that love to plan in that capacity and they love to do it. And, and Godspeed, I'm so grateful that there are people like that. I can tell you with 100% authenticity, that's not me. I love financial planning and I love helping other people do that. And I take intention behind my own planning but I love the result of what financial planning can do. And where I find the most progress that is made with ODs is not in the answers that they give, but the questions that I ask them. And so the first part of our entire process is just having some really good thought-provoking questions around why is this important for you to take action on right now? What has happened that leads you up to this point of 
I need to make a decision. I need to fix whether real or perceived, right? You and I talked in our last conversation about the stories that we have in our mind are often a lot worse than they actually are in reality. One of my favorite quotes from a, uh, the Stoic philosopher, Seneca the Younger, is uh, we, suffer more, we suffer often more in our own imagination than in reality. And that's true in financial planning as well, because we've seen situations where an OD brings their financials, they bring their practice financials to us and their personal financials, and they have it in their mind that, I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to do this. And, and, and we go through the analysis and we go through the process and we're like, do you really, or do you, why do you feel that way? And so a lot of it is just having someone be a sounding board for them to give them permission to think differently about the money in their practice. The other thing that I've learned, and this was a falsehood that I assumed going into this business 12 or what are we at now? Um, you know, 13, 12, 13 years ago, there is zero correlation between the amount of money that someone makes and their financial aptitude. I have seen people that make, you know, what some ODs bring in in a month. And I have seen them build a, build a very solid financial foundation and build good wealth for themselves. And I've seen ODs that are bringing in $30,000 a month and be broke. And so the important thing is know thyself, know, and this is kind of what you and I talked about in our last conversation as well, is knowing where your limitations are, knowing that if you're not in the place that you want to be at this point in your life, to ask yourself the question, the hard question, the mirror of why am I not getting what I wanted out of my practice, either from a financial standpoint, from a life and fulfillment standpoint, and then surrounding yourself with the people that can ask you the questions to bridge the gap between the things that you want to have versus the things that you are currently willing to do to get those things. There's a fine line between what we want and what we, and what we are willing to do to make those happen. And that, that bridge between those two is where you can see people really take the next steps towards financial independence and have their practice serve them instead of them continuing to serve their practice. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, and I, I guess the, the struggle is if you've never done this before, how do you identify the right individual to lead you through this process? How do you, how do you find out what you don't know? It's a hard day. Oh, see, I'm going to stump now that we, we, in our, in our conversation, we both went on little rants and little tangents here mm-hmm. and there, you know, our profession and I, and I use the word profession very intentionally because our, we, we as CFPs, as, and, and we are, our firm, integrated planning and wealth management is a fee only financial planning firm. Translation, what that means, we don't sell products, we don't sell investments, we don't sell insurance products, we provide advice, period. It's one of our differentiating factors, but it's not the only differentiating factor. This profession used to be and still is largely an industry. And I define an industry as someone that manufactures products behind the scenes to eventually sell to a consumer. The challenge is that our industry has done a very good job of making it very, very difficult for the common consumer to understand what they are actually getting when they align with a financial, with a financial professional. And I'm using financial professional in a very generous and, um, and, and open architecture type of way, because 
and again, not to digress too far down that path, but I have a list of questions that I can send over to you. If you want to post in the show notes or thing or, or something like that as a resource, a list of questions that I suggest people take to their financial professional that will give you more clarity to understand what type of business model they're operating in and to what extent they have the legal obligation to serve in your best interest, as opposed to the firm that they work with. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to share a couple of resources, but it is, as I mentioned from a client perspective, the value is going to be in the questions that you ask. The hard part, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ted, is that we don't know what we don't know. We don't right. know what questions to ask. One of my favorite layup questions is how are you paid? Like, so that's a, that's yeah. a really, really personal question. I mean, I hate to say it that way, you know, but, and I, I know where you're coming from on this, but I can, I can understand that's a challenging question to ask. I mean, why would you want to know how they're paid? Because it, 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 the answer to that question will dictate where their alignment and their affiliation lies or where their loyalty lies. And in a sense, from a legal standpoint, who their master is, um, when you look at it and, and, and I'm going to give the dissection or the dissection here, but I want to make the case, I, I want to impress upon the listeners, this isn't a good versus bad. I'm not, I, I'm not degrading a different business model. I'm simply trying to bring awareness in the distinction between the two business models because they both serve their purpose. It's a matter of understanding, like I said in the beginning, what are you solving for? Because the biggest challenge and the biggest disconnect that happens is when a client goes into a financial professional's office trying to solve this and the financial professional is trying to solve that, like client is trying to solve X and the financial professional is, is solving for Y. There's a disconnect in alignment of expectations. And so when you ask the question, how are you paid? It is one of the easiest and rip the bandaid off type questions that will give you that understanding. So if someone's, first of all, if they say free, not, they are, they are not a not-for-profit. Right. So understand that there is, so there is an answer to that question. And if they say, oh, there's no charge for my services, you have two choices here, right? It's either decide if you want to really dig deeper, or if that's the first and only red flag that goes up that says someone is not being as genuine and forthright as they should be in their, in their, in their service model. If an advisor, a financial professional, an agent, how, whatever label and title they're using sidesteps that question, one of two things I think is happening. Number one, they are either, they are questioning the value that they're delivering to the relationship. As ODs, you make money, you're paid for your services. As a profitable, hopefully a profitable practice owner, the money that you make exceeds your costs. Therefore, you get to make a profit. Same thing should be true for a financial professional. We are paid for our service, for our advice to our clients. The value that we deliver both intrinsically and extrinsically, or in, I should say implicitly and explicitly, our goal is to exceed that fee. And in the absence of value, that is where cost becomes an issue. So if an advisor, if a professional, if a financial professional sidesteps that question, it either leads me to believe, A, they're truly acting from a place of being dishonest and don't want to share with you how much they're getting paid off the products that they're selling you from a commission standpoint, and or they're questioning and, and, mis, and, and misjudging the value that they're bringing for a relationship. An advisor should confidently 
be able to articulate how they're getting paid and what, and, and what the client is receiving in exchange for that fee. Does that make sense? And answer the, and, and kind of, it completely does. And uh, you know, you're not the first person I've heard this from. I'm a huge fan of Motley Fool. Oh, sure. Um, uh, the guy's a guy named Robert Brokamp, who's also a certified financial planner. He does their Motley Fool Answers podcast. And he says the same thing a lot, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's just like, we always like get a second opinion because we're ODs and that's right. kind of thing, how that works, you know, so having someone else support what he said makes a lot of sense. So how do you, I guess the other challenge is, and this is something I don't really uh, know what they're great. I mean, hey, I can meet you at a meeting, but how am I going to find a cert, how someone who does what you do, how would I go through that process of, of vetting out that individual first to even find out where they are? So again, I, I think there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. And the, the answer or the direction that you go is to, to tie this back to optometry. Are you looking for a generalist or are you looking for a specialist? So if you're looking for a generalist, I am, again, I carry the marks as a certified financial planner. So I am full disclosure, going to lean more towards that certification and finding an advisor with that certification. As a CFP, we are held to a higher standard than any other certified, than, than any other financial professional. If you're not familiar with the CFP marks, the best way that I can equate that is kind of like accountings, accountants versus CPAs. All CPAs can do accounting. Not all accountants can call themselves CPAs. Right. And the same thing is true in the, in the financial planning world, right? Someone can right now technically legally put financial planner on their business card. There's no rules. There's no regulations that preclude them from doing that. The extent of the advice that they give, yes, now we're getting into the legal weeds, but let's not go there, right? <laughs> yeah. So anybody can put financial planner and a certified financial planner obviously calls themselves a financial planner. Not all financial planners can call themselves CFPs. So there's a rigorous education requirement that you have to go through. We are held to a higher ethical standard. And by definition, we are engaging in comprehensive financial planning, covering all aspects of someone's life, their personal and cash flow planning, insurance and risk management, investment, income tax, estate planning and succession planning and businesses. Uh, there's, there's, there's these key cornerstone, uh, keystone areas of planning that encompass what a CFP will show up and do. So if you go to letsmakeaplan.org and you can put a link to that in the show notes here, uh, you can search for a CFP that's local to your area. We work with clients all over the country. We have clients in, it's over 20 states right now. So you don't have to be geographically constrained. It just depends on to what level of specialization that you're looking for. Outside of that, once you find a CFP, then I, I really think it's just a matter of interviewing them. And kind of like you and I talked about in our, in our conversation on 2020 money, do you like the person? You're going to know early on, do you trust them? And by them carrying the marks, that's, that's removing one barrier to entry. And I think it also comes down to what are you trying, what's the biggest pain point that you're trying to solve? If quote unquote, all you need and that you're, you're savvy enough planner and you've done a lot and all you need is you know, some, some term insurance, or you need to set up a 529 for your kid's college or, or something in more of a transactional nature, then the type of person that you're going to be interviewing for and looking for is going to be different than if you're wanting someone to be in essence, your personal and potentially professional CFO to help you make the strategic big picture decisions on your finances. So when it comes to finances, um, this is one of those questions, you know, that you always hear a, an attorney never ask a question you know, doesn't already know the answer to. We'll see if I'm right about this one. <laughs> um, what's, what's the biggest piece of advice that you need to carry with you um, as far as when it comes to looking at 
at your finances? It's the biggest piece of advice you need to carry with you to start with your financial planning. How do how, I mean, what, what I guess is when should you start yesterday? Your financial planning. Oh yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the old Chinese, best, the old Chinese proverb, right? When's the best day to what's when's the best day to plant a tree 20 years ago? When's the next best time today? Right yeah. Yeah. Time. The way I put it to, to ODs is that time and money are your greatest assets when you're your greatest allies, the younger you are, and they become your greatest enemy, the older that you get. And ODs are already, I, I kind of identified, they're already fighting three headwinds when they get out of school. Number one, just purely compared to their peers that they graduated undergrad with, you're already four years behind from a saving standpoint, assuming that most ODs are not doing a fair amount of saving as they're going through optometry school, because let's face it, you're in, you're in school, you're, you're either living off your loans or your, your study, your, uh, your spouse is supporting you in some context, but you're really not in your peak earning years where you're able to save. So you've lost four, potentially five. If you do a residency right there, you lost four years. That's one headwind. The second headwind is again, optometry school is not cheap. Uh, as as a as a spouse of one that is chiseling through uh through four years of, of optometry school, yeah, it, it's not cheap. So you've got those headwinds that, that is fighting for your cash flow. At the end of the day, everything comes down to cash flow. And then third, with a little bit of an asterisk next to this third, if you start a practice or you buy into a practice, you have that potential headwind of debt as well. Now, the the reason I put the asterisk next to that is that buying into a practice should be providing you a return on that investment. So you should be getting cash flow from that practice, but there is debt associated typically with the buy-in of a practice as well. So I joke with ODs that, and, and if you're a cold start, right, that's an entirely different conversation that is going to add an, an additional layer of complexity and, um, and and challenge to work through can be done, but you need to be aware of it. So those three headwinds make the make and emphasize the importance of planning so, uh, so pivotal to the long-term financial success of an OD. And what we find often happens is that by the time there, there's a certain amount of catch-up that we find ODs play because the cash flow has been spoken for, you know, by the time you go to optometry school, you buy a house and you start a practice, there's two commas in your liability side already, right? You're over a million dollars in debt. And so by the time they come up for air and have some breathing room, production gets up, et cetera, whatever that might be, you're now 10 years, potentially five to 10 years behind where your other colleagues, and when I say colleagues, I'm talking non-OD friends, right? That maybe don't have the debt that weren't in school for eight years. They've had, assuming they've done it right, time to start that greatest law or the, the eighth one of the world, the power of compounding interest. And so just being aware that this is not something that you can put off. You have to address it and you have to face it head on because it will not solve itself. You know, we, we talked um, the, the, the concept of if you don't plan your life, someone else will. And guess what? They don't have much plan for you. So maybe someone else is in plan, is in planning your life in the absence of you planning it, but it's certainly not going to end up the way that you like. One of my phrases that I've learned from, um, uh, from the book, um, uh, who not how by Dan Sullivan is one of our worst fears is our future self meeting the person that we could have become if we just would have understood what is possible. And that can be taken from a financial standpoint as well. If you, if you think about, gosh, if I just would have found someone to hold me accountable, 
found someone to give me tough love on the things that I do need to do right the first time and not think that I know how to do it and then make the mistake that costs me not only the financial dollars, but also the time currency that I have in this equation as well to think about what I could have done if I just would have done X, Y, and Z meets the person that you end up becoming. That's my biggest fear is meeting the Delta between what could be possible and where, and where I end up. So, I mean, we're a million dollars in debt. Um, what do we do about it? I mean, you know, declare bankruptcy. I'm kidding. No. Okay. <laughs> so we're done. Thanks everybody. Thanks for having me on. No. Ted. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, punch that ticket. But I mean, seriously, I mean, okay. I found, I found this financial planner. I've, I've, but I've, I'm looking at this, I'm looking down the double barrel of a bill of a million dollars. It might as well be a billion. I mean, you know, it could be, it's, it's, it seems pretty unsurmountable. What do we do? How do we, how do we go through that process? Because, you know, I've got right now, my associate's been out of school for two years. I've got a son who is, is halfway through his first year of optometry school. That is a large, large undertaking, just that part of the finances. And then all those other things you talk about, how are you going to get that out under control? And, and how does, I guess a second question to sort of fit into this, how does debt figure in to your life? Is it, is it a terrible thing? Is it a good thing? Is it a, I don't know. Oh, there's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be, my wife always says she has a high D personality and she's like, why do you say in 20, what you could say in five words? Well, sorry, so, I threw you an onion. So that was, my, <laughs> that was the biggest problem right there. So. so we're only talking about one side of the balance sheet there, right? We're only talking about the liability side. We have to understand not only the asset side of that balance sheet, and there are tangible and intangible assets that can serve you in that capacity. The tangible assets that we're talking about are the vehicles that you have that you've acquired to build wealth, the practice, real estate that you end up owning, your investments as you continue to add to those and the power of compounding interest. And then we shift over to the income statement. Every pra- every you don't have to own a business to have an income statement, profit loss, call it what you will. When we say income statement, profit loss for the audience, we're talking about the same thing. A household is no different than an optometry practice. Think about it. When we, when we think about the, the core three financial statements that every business should have buttoned up and understand, every practice should know how to pull, interpret, and make decisions off of your statement of cash flow, your balance sheet, and your income statement. And your personal life should be no different from that. On the balance sheet side of things, you should know to not over leverage yourself. And there's a bunch of ratios that we get into on the practice side of things that help us understand the health of our balance sheet. But you should know the ratio of assets to liabilities and know whether you have, and it's called the quick ratio, right? Do we have enough assets to provide for the liabilities that we have in the practice, both from a cash flow and just a pure value standpoint? On the income statement side of things, are we profitable? Are we, are we making more than we spend? Or on the personal side, what we more often hear that as spend less than you make. And so the delta between those is how we prioritize where we put that money to work. I am not one that says that you have to, uh, like Dave Ramsey becomes a, a verb, right? I'm not right. saying that you have to Ramsey that debt because typically when we look at the, at the time value of money, my general rule of thumb is that if you can pay off your optometry school debt, all unsecured credit, um, you know, all unsecured debt in five years or less, Godspeed, let her rip. Okay. Throw everything at it. The only, the only way, or the only asterisk that I put next to that rule 
even if you're going to do that and you're not going to fund your Roth IRAs, you're not going to fund your 401k, I still recommend you do the 401k up to whatever the company is matching. Most practices, if they have a 401k, they have a safe harbor 401k that allows the practice owner to fully fund their contribution while not being subjected to uh, the ADP and ACP testing requirements that govern 401ks. Most 401k match formulas are the participant will get a 4% match if they put in 5%. If So the, let, me, let me rephrase that a little bit better. If the participant puts in 5%, the company will match 4%. So my recommendation, that's free money on the table. Like would, if, I, if, I, if I put a stack of 4% of your salary at the end of the table on December 31st, would, and let's use round math, right? An OD making hundred grand as an associate. If I stacked four grand on the table, would you or would you not take that money at the end of the year? Of course, everybody's going to take yeah. it. And so that's the, that's the position that I say, that's the asterisk next to the Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey will say, don't put a dollar towards savings. Don't put a dollar towards investment. Just pay off your debt. I don't believe that. I don't believe that you should do that. Put that money to work. Everything else, if you can pay off your debt in five years or less, then I will support, I don't necessarily always encourage it, but I will support the idea of just Ramseying the rest of your debt and paying it off. If you can't, then, and this is where advisors love it. We can say it depends a lot and still, and, and still, you know, use it as a get out of jail free card because it quite literally does depend. It depends going back to that on purpose life. What is important to you? How do you prioritize and organize the cash flow? We have some ODs that we talk with that are perfectly comfortable carrying their debt around for 20 years. It's just a monthly expense on their balance sheet. They realize that the return on investment, they, they think about it. And quite literally, it, even though it shows up as a liability on your balance sheet, you can think about your ability as an OD to produce the income that you have, whether as a practice owner or an associate, is predicated upon you having the letters OD after your name. There was a cost to get those letters. And so the investment, the return that you're getting on that investment in your education is the ability to make the income that you make. So- Again, it's all about mindset and how you think about it. So some ODs will be comfortable keeping around 20 years of debt. I will say that most relationships that we work with find a happy medium. It's an and equation. We're saving for the future. We're doing these, these low-hanging fruit strategies because we know the power of compounding interest and we are uh, paying down debt. I will say the two things that get ODs in trouble when it comes to achieving a lot of these goals, they they, they outkick their coverage on house and car. If you can manage those two big ticket expenses in your personal life, you will put yourself in a, from a, from a probability standpoint, you will put yourself in a much, much better position of succeeding than if you buy as much house as your mortgage broker tells you that you can afford and you buy as much car as you're qualified for down at the dealership, manage those two expenses I'm not saying everything else will fall in place, but you're, you're giving yourself a much, much better chance at success. So one of the challenges I also see, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to speak to a specific idea of practice ownership. I mean, you and I both believe in owning your own business. Absolutely. And, uh, that, I, you know, just the, we've, we've talked about how, you know, optometry is not going to make me rich, but it certainly will give me the tools to make me rich. Like we talked about. And, um, but let's say the challenge that I've heard a lot of, I've talked to, I'll call them what my dear friend and I, Mike Rothschild, a great American calls reluctant entrepreneurs. Yeah. These are people who have been working in or working for someone else uh, as an associate, no matter what level of whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. 
and they've decided suddenly that they're going to become a practice owner. And yet they've bought the house, they've got the car, they've got the family, they've got the school loan. And what they're now dealing with is this ball and chain around their ankle because they got, they really, they have a job that's paying them. What's, and now I'm going to take on more debt to have another, to have a business. What should be the thought process to making that? Because I I see this is where I want to go. How do I make this decision and make it make sense for me financially without going into the poorhouse? So let me answer that question with a clarifying question first. Are they, are you talking about the associate having an opportunity to buy into the existing practice that they're working? Or are you talking them leaving, jumping off the the proverbial ledge, so to speak, and opening up their own practice and, and giving up their income? Can I do a yes and? Yeah, of course. Okay. Let's, of course. let's, let's, let's talk about both of those scenarios. So, so the first side of it, I'll, I'll go back to the idea of understanding both sides of the balance sheet and the relation of the income statement. If you're buying into a practice, there should absolutely be a return on equity for that purchase price. Yes, you're going to have debt service, right? If, if you're the practice owner, like think about the seller in this situation. At the end of the day, owning a business and the enterprise value that is in a practice is the predictability of future cash flow. The more predictable that future cash flow is, the greater valuation I get from my practice. That's why when you think of startup practices or you think of startup businesses in general, there's a lot of disconnect between investors, what they think, what an investor thinks a business is worth and what the founder thinks it's worth because of the because of just the confirmation and, and personal bias that we have towards this baby that we've nurtured called our business. An optometry practice is, and this, you know, like you had said, it from a from a vehicle standpoint. It is a phenomenal cash flow generation machine. And the beautiful thing about it is from a, from a business standpoint, we're not making up a brand new product. This isn't some tech startup that created this product that we don't know whether the world is going to need or not or want or, or, or desire. The business of optometry, we know what the metrics should be. We know that owner's compensation should be on a low end between 25 and on a high end. We've seen practices in the 37% range. We know non-staff or non-OD staff should be 25%. We know that rent expense should be no more than 7 to 8% of gross revenue. We know that cost, like we know all these metrics. So the business plan is proven there. And so if you're buying an existing practice that already has the cogs of the wheel already in place, then it just comes down to negotiating the purchase price and realizing that what we're buying, yes, there's going to be a cost for it because my investor, the, the owner of the business wants to get a return on their investment. But that doesn't mean that you as a business owner should not have freestanding cash flow above and beyond your debt payment. If there's not, then you go through a debt restructuring. Then you look at, okay, maybe I can't pay this practice off in five years. I need to pay it off in seven years or 10 years. And you extend the note. Yes, the cost of that note might be a little bit more, but at least you're able to participate in the... In, you're able to participate in the future cash flows and thus enterprise value of that practice. Does that make sense in the first on the first situation? Yes. The second equation is much more of a I don't want to say precarious, but there there's there's the unknown of proof of concept. And what it's I mean more nuanced. Of, it's more nuanced and you have more ways screwed up for lack of a better word. Right? If you if you're going to be going off on your own and hanging a cold and hanging a shingle and doing a cold start, we know what the, again, back to what I said, we know the business plan. We know, do this, do this, don't do this. We know the geographic numbers to support a practice. Like we have all of these. 
it still doesn't have proof of concept on how you decide to color that canvas. I guess from a painting standpoint, my first example, you're buying a paint by numbers, this you're working with a blank canvas. So on the paint by numbers, kind of don't screw it up. And you like, I'm being kind of curt there and, 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 and harsh, but you've got the vision there. You've got what the picture should look like. Just stay inside the lines and let the rinse repeat on the news on, on the cold start that you're thinking about making that proverbial leap into entrepreneurship. You've, you've got a blank canvas there. And so you have to first understand, are you an artist and can you create the picture that you want the, not the first time because newsflash, it's not going to go as perfect as you think it's going to go when you start a practice, which I no. think is the importance of having the proactive conversation with the practice that you're working in and do one of two things. If you're going to do a cold start, and you're going to completely walk away from your existing practice, you need to be comfortable not taking a paycheck for at least a year. So you need to have a war chest of cash on hand that your family does not need to think you and your family, if you're married and kids and dog picket fence, the whole nine yards, right? If you're in that position, you need to be comfortable not taking a distribution out of your business for at least a year. That's my personal, that's what I've seen from experience standpoint. That's my recommendation. If you can have a proactive conversation with the practice that you're currently in and work on some type of phase that we've had a lot of clients that have either bought an existing practice that was kind of a fixer upper from an investment standpoint, we talk about this as a value buy, right? What they're buying to practice on sale, so to speak, and, and, the, and what they're purchasing is the upside potential of that practice where they went into it. And they're only the, the patient flow is such that they're only able to see patients to maybe three days a week. And so they, they, they gap fill their schedule and thus their income by either picking up fill-in work or grabbing a corporate location or staying on in the current practice. To your example, they're staying on in the practice that they were in and working proactively with that practice owner to say, I want to do this, make sure you honor your non-compete and any contractual arrangements that you have with your, own, with, with your, with your current uh, practice owner, but see if you can phase out that way and, and give yourself a little bit more of a runway, but you need to have cash in the bank. If you don't, in my first example there, or in my example of a cold start where you're completely going cold Turkey and starting off on your own, you have to have that year's worth of cash in the bank on the personal side of things. In the absence of doing that, what you will find happen. And again, I've just, I'm saying this from experience, what you will end up doing is you will make decisions in your business that will compromise the conditions of success because you feel like you need to do it in the biz. You need to take money out of the business and money capital in the first couple of years of a practice are the oxygen. It's the lifeblood of that business. Cash flow is king, personal and professional, especially in a startup. Does that make sense? It does. It really does. Um, you know, and the, I think that's- I got to remember to breathe here because I'm just like going and going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the, the, I think that's probably the biggest- challenge, uh, is, and, and, you know, you, you're looking again at the shackle that you got around your ankle and you, you think it's just so overwhelming. You couldn't possibly make it, but yet so many people do, and some of them do it just in spite of themselves. Right. Uh, but for the, those that have the wise consult from someone like you, it makes it significantly easier. And I, I think that's part of the other challenge is we're so terrified to ask for advice. Um, it's, and I don't know what, what it is that makes us that way. Um, you know, I, I, if it, if it is just the pride that we have that we know everything, or is it just the, the pride that we don't want to tell anyone we don't know what we don't know? I, I don't know what that is, but, um, you know, if you had, if you had the ability to tell someone to get past this, how do you coach them through saying it's okay? 
So we've all seen the movie, the lion King, or I'm assuming we've all seen the movie, the lion King. Right. And there's a point in the lion King where, um, uh, scar leads Simba down in the Valley and the stampede happens. And then I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody. Right. If you, if you haven't seen, I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and Simba wanders off and he, he abandons the tribe and later on in the movie, he's blaming himself for what's happening. And, um, uh, Rafiki, the monkey, right. As he's walking next beside Simba, he takes his stick and he whacks him on the back of the head. And Simba's like, Oh, what'd you do that for? And he's like, doesn't matter. It's in the past. And it's the same metaphor. It's a story that I use to impress upon ODs that what you did in the, don't shoot on yourself. It's not a good look and it's not a good smell. Sure. Right. So don't, I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done this. Any good advisor worth their weight and is, and is, and is doing planning for the right reason. You should never feel talked down to, insulted, embarrassed, feeling belittled for things that you did in the past, because you know what, we can't change them. And so understand what can I do? What have I learned? My grandma always used to say, it's okay to make mistakes every day, just make new ones. So what have you learned from your mistakes and how can I use the knowledge that I now have to have the wisdom to not do that again? And then back to my favorite metaphor, my, my, my philosophy and approach to 2021 is what am I solving for and who, not how, I've already demonstrated that I didn't really know what I was doing in the very beginning, or even with the best of intentions, I didn't know what I didn't know because guess what? OD doesn't equal CPA. It doesn't meet equal CFP. It doesn't equal JD. And so who can I surround myself with to give me the right answer the first time that's in my best interest, that's in alignment with what I want to accomplish and then move on from there. And then, you know, we talk about this hedgehog concept that Jim Collins talks about in his book, um, Good to Great. And then a monograph to that is called um, Flywheel, which is this idea of the hedgehog concept is understanding, you know, what am I, what am I deeply passionate about doing? What am I the best in the world at doing and what drives my economic engine? And when you find the intersection that you like, make that a Venn diagram, if we're thinking about this from a conceptual standpoint, make that a Venn diagram and just show up every day doing that and surround yourself with the people that can help you do the other things that you know need to be done well to give you the greatest chance of success in life, financially, professionally, personally, maritally, spiritually. Again, we could lee on and on and on, on on all aspects of your life. That's, that's great. That's fantastic advice. Um, you know, and, and this is the kind of things that people need to understand these past selves. You can't go back and tell them how to do it. Yeah. You know, it, 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 that's, that, that's done. And yeah. uh, it's kind of funny. I, I know I get spoken to because of intervention from divine intervention, whatever, <laughs> but this is the third time I've heard this in a week from two different, from three other people about, you know, that you can't go back and fix this other thing that's happened. And, and that's a, that's a great, great thing for everybody to learn. If you learn nothing else, uh, Adam's advice there is, is brilliant. Um, we talked a little bit about percentages and how things should work. Mm-hmm. So now you've got this established uh, practice that's been around, say, I don't know, 27 years and there's no debt. Good. There's um, uh, the potential for an associate to come in as a partner and you're still trying to figure that sort of stuff. For those of you who don't understand, I'm talking about myself. This is $10,000 <laughs> of free advice comes in. Um, you know, one of the things I started noticing when I was looking at my income, when I was looking at my profit and loss statement was 
a lot of those numbers, the percentages started shifting a lot. I, I no longer had a, had the, the mortgage on the building. I no longer had any equipment expenses except for this one, you know, I was getting it for 0% interest uh, and I would be stupid not to yep. take their money. Yep. But, you know, and suddenly the percentages started getting out of whack. Is that, am I doing something wrong? Is that something that's a common thing to see? I, I just don't know. Now, when the only IOU on an income statement is you, then, 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 then everything, most practices don't have an expense problem. If they have any problem at all, it's a lack of income problem. Yes, you can have, I mean, I've seen practices that completely over lever up on equipment and buy the latest, greatest technology and have all these different cameras and things in the office and not the, and don't have the patient to the patient base to support it and the revenue. But most practices have an income that are in essence struggling, have an income problem on the expense side of things. And when we shift that over on the liability side of things, as that liability column of your balance sheet gets smaller and smaller and smaller, we know that a net worth statement in a practice assets minus liabilities equals net equals equity or shareholders you know, shareholders equity. And so as the at, or said the right said the other way, assets equals liabilities plus shareholders equity. And so as the liability in that equation continues to go down, the shareholders equity continues to go up because they have to balance out. And so there's nothing wrong with that. The thing that I find interesting about what you had just said there, Ted, is that we get so used to thinking about our practice in such a way that when it starts to look different, our immediate, our, 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 our um, monkey brain kind of says, oh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. What'd I do? How'd I screw it up? And it's just a matter of, of trusting. And this is where, you know, the uh, uh, Geibo, right? Garbage in, garbage out from a, financial, from a financial statement standpoint. One of the biggest mistakes that we see happen with practice owners that come, that, that come in for even just for an initial consult that we look at is their financial statements are all out of whack. They'll have their, we've seen it where, you know, in, in 2020, the PPP loan, the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program, yep. we saw that classified as income on the, on the income statement. We've seen doctor salaries that have not even been broken, that, that aren't, like, I believe that you should have doctor salaries broken out on your income statement so that you can very quickly and easily get an understanding as to what the practice is producing per doctor wage paid and grow, like, you have to have your financial statements in order in order for you to be confident in the data that you're seeing and thus trusting in the feeling that you have. So just switching your mindset. I mean, from what you had said, it sounds like you have a good problem to have, right? The biggest problem that we've heard from ODs this year is like, I have a lot of cash in my business. What do I do with it? Yeah. And that is terrifying. I got to say, I mean, just because I'm just so terrified that I'm going to turn around and the cash is going to be just gone. And uh, this is where I lean on one of your former guests on your podcast uh, and one of my classmates and dear friends, Mick Kling, um, you know, just the, the advice that I was able to get from him and, you know, taking some of that money and putting it where I'm not going to touch it and I'm yeah. not going to look at it and it's going to be away from me. So when I do have to have it, it's there and, and I'm a lot, feel a lot more comfortable about it. Oh, Mick and Mick is a great resource, right? He's done a lot of great work for ODs and under in helping them understand what their what the numbers of their practice are telling them, and telling telling them as the owner. Interesting thing that you just said that I'll that I'll uh, push on a little bit there and just make aware. A lot of times I feel ODs, or a lot of times I observe that ODs feel that once I take money out of my business, that it's a one way revolving door, that I can never get money back in. And so that's why it's, it's not uncommon. You know, we had a, we had a call earlier today with an OD that it's like, 
yeah, it's okay to move out that 250 grand out of the practice. Like, well, I, well what if I need it? It's like, you can put it back in. Like it, 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 it yes, it's a line item on your, uh, it's going to adjust your shareholder basis in your business and your accountant might ask a question about it, but it's certainly not anything that can't be undone. So the, the, and it goes back to putting intention behind the decisions that you're making with your money. And then the absence of having a plan or understanding of the implications of the decisions that I'm making with my money, that's where we get into paralysis by analysis. And the decision is to not make a decision, not making a decision is still a decision. And so when we understand that just because we take money out of our business to put to work somewhere else, whether that's in as basic and as simplistic as a joint investment account, or if you've done estate planning and you've set up a family trust where now you've kind of, in essence, probated your estate right now, and you put that money to work in your trust, yes, it's going to be a little work. And if you really needed to, you could get that money back into the practice. But that's why we advocate for keeping a good, healthy emergency fund in the business. Typically speaking, we like to run lean practices. So anywhere from one, maybe two months of OPEXs of operating expenses in the practice, yes, keep that in cash. We're not saying to drain the practice account, but if you're one of those ODs that is asking yourself the question or the biggest problem from a financial standpoint that you're seeing in 2020 is because of HHS funding, CARES funding, and because of PPP forgiveness. And if you have an idle loan and you're sitting on this much cash, newsflash, pay it back, like that's a different conversation that we can dive into if you want. But if after all of that, you're still, your question is, I'm flush with all this cash, get it out of the practice. It's okay. And you can put it back in if it really came down to that. Right. Well, I've really enjoyed having you today. I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to give us one more pearl of wisdom. If, if there was, if there was one thing that uh, you would advise our audience to do what would it be? Yeah, I'm going to answer that. And then I'll like five minutes after we hit record and say, Oh, I should have said that. Right. Because that, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm using that buffer there as a way to try and think subconsciously about like, what do I, what do I really want to emphasize? We, we did already talked about the fact to start today, you know, yeah. it, the, the Lauren, uh, I, I tell you a quick little story too. Lauren Michaels, who was the uh, host of, or actually was the producer and executive director for SNL forever um, was asked one time, you know, you, you go through all this process. How do you know the show's ready to go on? He goes, we don't go on because the show's ready to be going because it's 11 o'clock and it's Saturday night. <laughs> um, you know, so that's a good way um, to say it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a lot of part uh, it, ODs are just tragically careful and we yeah. don't move when we should move because we're so wanting it to be exactly perfect because we're such technicians and uh, I, I, I can't go back to what you said earlier enough. Get started today. Um, that's that's going to be my advice for everybody. Um, yeah. You know, and I guess the the you know the thing is, um, you're an expert. You know, you truly are, Adam. And um, the one thing I have to say about going to someone like you as an expert is, if you need advice on something, go to the expert because they already had all their knowledge in, that's set up and ready to go. Whereas those of us who are not experts have no idea where to get this knowledge from, no idea how to put it in order, no idea how to implement it. And that's what, where your true gift is for us. Yeah. It, 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 it comes back to, I'll emphasize again, that who, not how, right. Stay, this is a stay in your lane, OD, right. <laughs> not to say that anything that we have that I know as a CFP, I don't have some magic sauce. It's not that I have something that is 
trademarked, proprietary, that the only way that you can get this information is if you become a client of our firm. That's not what we're saying here. And that's not it. Please, I hope that's not the message that I've been sending here. No, no. The message that I've been sending here is that the 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 commoditization of information invariably and paradoxically makes it even more difficult for people to understand how do I take that information and turn it into knowledge? And I define the the definition between those two things. Knowledge is when I know that the information that I have applies to me, and then do I have the wisdom to act on it and the confidence to act on that? And so if you know what you do best and surround yourself with people that can help you make those decisions to, to, to do the right thing as well, um, that's where you see yourself grow. The, the phrase that, you know, we all know the definition, the definition of insanity is to Mm -hmm. keep doing the same thing. I, it's not that I don't like that definition. I have a better one. And this comes from our, from our friend, Mr. Albert Einstein as well. And he says, no problem can be solved with the same consciousness that created it. And so if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, but you're getting different results or from a, to put this through the financial lens, huh? see what I did there to put this through the fin, right? Right. Don't be so myopic. There's another one for you. Think a little, you know, step away and look a little bit more big picture as to the why that you don't have what you have. Financial success is simply the multiplication and the combination of daily, weekly, monthly habits that you've been making with your money. And in the absence of having someone look at that objectively unbiased, to tell you where you should have gone left instead of gone right. And again, it's not to impress upon, oh, Ted, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have done this. It's like, let's talk about these things. Let's understand why that was made. And now how do we course correct? And it's in that course correction that you can now align your intentions with your actions and have your money and your practice work for you instead of you continuing to show up and work for your practice. And as I've had more conversations than I care to admit, have ODs tell me the only way I'm going to be getting out of this practice is with two solid lines behind me where they drag me out in the stretcher. Like that's not what any practice owner wants. And in the absence of putting different plans in place, if that's the way you feel right now, then you have to look at the conditions of how you're showing up professionally, personally, and yes, financially and say what needs to change. And it starts with you. So with that, again, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's great advice, Adam. And I think that you just really brought that one right home. And and, and also around at Christmas time here, right? (laughs) But the other thing that was really great about that is something that's been, I've had a lot of happening lately is this incremental growth idea, you know, and um, atomic habit style. Atomic habits or all sorts of different things. I mean, just it's, it's, again, it's this resonating thing that I keep hearing over and over again. And all these people that you admire, uh, audience, Adam, me, that you admire, that you see that just are just at these pinnacle points of their life. It's because they've been working slowly at this for their entire careers. It did not happen overnight. Um, and, and also another thing that happens too is, um, a lot if you ever walk through the woods and you see a turtle up on a fence post, you pretty much know it didn't get up there by itself. <laughs> Someone put it there. Right. And that's the same thing that happens too. We're all feeding into each other. Don't be afraid to ask for advice. Don't be afraid to go to someone who has an expertise and can advise you and give you the right situations. Um, thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate your knowledge and your time. And I, I know our audience is going to be so much better for what we talked about today. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on. If, again, for listeners, if you're 
If you're interested in learning more about like some of the things that we're talking about here, check out 2020 Money Podcast. It's been a, a passion project of mine. Our goal is to just, again, help optometrists make the best and most educated and informed financial decisions in their life, in their business. Um, so, so again, appreciate the opportunity to come on and share in the conversation, Deb. And I can promise you this won't be the last time you'll hear from Adam on our, our podcast. Thank I you. I appreciate that. Thank you.